uh, for the next, uh, well, for this morning, uh, what we are going to do is uh, the last Sunday of every month for maybe the next eight or nine uh, months, we're just going to jump out of whatever series we're in after the book of um, Esther. We're going to start the book of Ephesians. But we're just going to jump out, and I want to uh, do a, a, um, an eight-week series on evangelism. And part of this was uh, inspired in me listening to Lon Allison when he was here for those uh, three, three days. I was just so greatly encouraged by Lon and his, um, his explanation and his, his passion uh, for this area of, of ministry. And one of the things that Lon did was he outlined eight um, types of witness that we can have as individuals. And uh, so I thought it'd be fascinating for us just to go through those eight types of witnesses over the next number of months and just learn a little bit about uh, evangelism or witnessing because part of our role is to be um, witnesses. We might not all be evangelists, and I would be sort of shocked or, um, if, if I asked this morning for a show of hands of how many believed you had the gift of evangelism, I would suspect that we probably wouldn't see more than about five or six hands go up. Uh, but we all are called to be witnesses in this world. And uh, Lon Allison made a, a, a distinction between the two, which I think was helpful. As he started talking about uh, uh, an evangelist, he says, an evangelist is one who lives a focused life of witness. They are called and gifted by God for this. They have a consuming passion for the lost, a strong ability to persuade and convince demonstrate a special touch from God in this area with remarkable results and ability to comfortably share the gospel with anyone, anytime, anywhere. And I think we know people like that. Lon is one of those kinds of people. Lon just cannot hold back when it comes to talking about the gospel. He talks about it in taxi cabs. He talks about it in airports. He talks about it in airplanes. He talks about it in the hotel lobby where he's at. In the, in the three days he was here, he must have had at least three or four conversations with people about the gospel. He is an evangelist. He is gifted to that. But as I said, that doesn't all fit. My, uh, my tape has come off on my mic. Sorry, Ross. Well, sort of. I'll try and keep my head still. Um, but we are all called to be witnesses, and he gave this uh, illust- or, um, definition of witnesses. Witnesses are Christ followers, so that's everyone who is a child of God is a Christ follower, who are called and enabled to guide people toward Christ. That's part of what we do, just by the way that we live, by being salt and light, we guide people towards Christ. They have a genuine concern for the lost, which I think we all ought to have, our, our Brothers or sisters, our spouses, our, our extended family, our neighbors, we, we are concerned for them because we understand that those who, who die outside of Christ spend an eternity separated from God. So they have, a, they have a, 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 a concern for the lost, and they are in proximity to those who are far from God. Every one of us here has, I would say, at least one person, if not more, that we bump shoulders with on a day-to-day basis who is far from God. And so we rub shoulders with them. And they have a willingness to learn how to be effective in sharing Christ. Isn't that what a witness is? It's, it's just a Christ follower who is concerned about the lost, who, who, who has proximity to those who are lost, and wants to know how to lead them closer to Christ. And then he gave this, uh, this definition, which I think is a very helpful definition. I want to unpack it before we look at Philip uh, briefly uh, at the end of this definition. The definition that he gave is simply this. To evangelize or to witness is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit 
and others to bring one more person one step closer to Christ. I'll say that once again. To evangelize or witness is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others to bring one or more persons one step closer to Christ. The first part of that definition uh, is, I think, uh, very, uh, it releases me. It takes pressure off of me. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've um, tracked this through the Scripture. Lon did a great job of just giving these bullet points, and I've expanded them a little bit for our purposes this morning. But he really emphasized the fact that God is really the evangelist. That God is the one that is more concerned with the lost than you or I will ever be concerned about them. And the first point that he made, which I think is so helpful as we begin to get this layered in our minds, is that God is already active in evangelism. God is already active in evangelism. And you say to me, well, how is that so, Paul? Well, one of the places that I would go to, and we've gone here a a few times, is Romans chapter 1, and starting at verse um, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Loved ones, do you understand that? That what Paul is saying here is that God is already, before we ever came into the picture, God was witnessing to himself. God was evidencing himself to creation to humankind, that in the, in the trees that are out there, in the ocean, in the birds of the air, in the, in the animals that, that, that populate this planet, in the, in, the, in the fauna or flora, flora's plants, right? In the plants all around us, we see the, the daffodils coming up and the crocuses coming up. We see the precision with which, with which creation continues to, to unfold before us, that all around us, we see evidence of God, And that it it is our choosing when we say, no, I don't want nothing to do that. I don't want to recognize God in that. But if we're honest with ourselves, we come to the place from time to time where we say, how did this all come to be? This is astounding, the way that it all works in an ordered fashion. I I just can't understand that it just happened to all happen by chance. I wonder where this all came from. And so God has already, before we even come onto the scene, He has been testifying of himself in the world around us. The second uh, thing that I was thinking about there is in Acts chapter 17, where it talks, uh, Paul is talking to these, uh, these individuals in, in, um, in Athens, and he's talking to them about this unknown God of, of whom they're worshiping. And starting at verse 26, he says this, And God made from, er- from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So God made us all, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. I think clearly what Paul is saying in this passage is that God has placed every single human being that will ever be born or has ever been born on this planet in specific places. And he has done so that they should seek God. 
that, that there is no sort of corner of this universe where it is impossible for somebody to start looking for God. That if somebody begins to seek for God, that God will make himself known to them. That God will reveal himself to them. So by the very place that you are born and raised and live, God has placed you there in order that you might begin to seek him. And he says this, that God is not actually very far from any one of us. Because in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, our very existence is wrapped up in God. And it, it, it's even wrapped up in the fact that we are made in the image of God. That there is something about us that separates us from creation, that separates us from animals, that separates us from birds, that separates us from plant life, and that, that there is something in us that, even though it's marred by sin, reflects the image of God. And so by the fact of creation... And by the fact of where we end up living, and by the fact of God's proximity to us, God is already active in evangelism before you or I ever step into the picture. We need to know, loved ones, that we are not breaking new ground when we talk to somebody about the gospel. God has spoken to them long before you ever came onto the scene. I find that encouraging. I find that comforting. I find that stimulating because it takes the pressure off of me to start at square zero. Square zero? At zero. Square one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's like an amen. That helps. The second thing that, that um, we find about cooperating with the Holy Spirit is that God is the primary seeker of the lost. We see this dotted throughout the Scripture uh, a couple of verses that come to mind are Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. Or God, when Jesus, when he's summed up um, his work with Zac Zacchaeus, and after he's um, uh, come to faith in, in Jesus, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God is a seeking God. He has come on a search and rescue mission. And that mission uh, has involved revealing himself from, from, from the, the point of the garden uh, to the incarnation in the cross. And that in the incarnation in the cross, we see in, in its most perfect form, in its most brilliant form, in its most multifaceted way, the seeking God. God became flesh and dwelt among us. God lived a perfect life among us. God in Christ Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. God raised him up on the third day and seated him at his right hand and declared that all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would become his children. Loved ones, God is a seeking God. God is a God that is more passionate and more concerned and, and more... Um, understanding of the consequences of the lost, God is way more uh, involved in that than we ever will be. So remember, God is active in evangelism before you come on the scene. God is the primary seeker of the lost. The third thing about this is that God includes us in his work. This is, this is sort of an amazing thing. It's not that we go to talk to somebody and, and we say, oh God, would you come along please with me? It doesn't work like that at all. God is already involved and he says, I'd like you to be my hands and my feet in this situation. And so God is, um, includes us in his work. He includes us in the work of prayer. 
uh, in, in the beginning of um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I, I urge you on behalf of all men everywhere um, with prayers and petitions to pray for people. This is a bit of a paraphrase because he desires no one to be lost. He desires all to come to faith in him. Paul in, in Romans chapter or 10 verse 1 says there that his heart's desire and his prayer is for his own people that they may come to a saving knowledge of God. So God involves you and I in, in this world of evangelism through our praying. But another way in which he does it is through divine appointments. It's through divine appointments. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, um, we read there of, uh, of Paul sort of trying to deal with division in the church. And he says there, what is Apollos then? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, God had arranged assignments for them. God had arranged appointments for Paul and Apollos. And, and he had set up these appointments to which they were to participate in. They were to go and, on, on be, and, and with the strength of God and in the power of God, they were to meet different people and share the gospel and see those people come to a faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God has given us divine assignments. He has set up for us divine appointments. The fourth thing about cooperating with the Holy Spirit is, God, um, is God's uh, part in evangelism with us. And it, uh, Lon, this was a real helpful thing for me because Lon quoted from Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 there, where it's the Great Commission, and he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always. You know, sometimes I had gone in and think, well, it's up to me. I've got to talk them into this. I've got to convince them of this. I can't answer all their questions. What am I ever going to do? But no, it is much, the, the, the salvation of the soul of the lost is much more important to God than to just kind of say, okay, go on and then come back and tell me how it all went. Loved ones, when you are talking with someone, when you are sharing with someone, God is with you. He doesn't leave you on your own. And even another place, it would said that the Spirit of God, when you don't know what to say, um, um, don't worry because the Spirit of God will talk to you and he'll bring to mind things of the Word of God. And so his presence is with us, his Spirit is with us, enabling us to deal with the situation that we find ourselves in. And then the fifth point of this is simply that, that God is responsible for the results of evangelism. It's not up to us to save anyone. That is a work of God. It is up to us to be obedient. It is us, up to us to, to speak the truth. It is up to us to be salt and light. But you and I can save nobody. The Bible is very clear that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so it takes the pressure off. But I simply am to be obedient. I simply am to share the gospel. I am simply to be salt and light. And I say simply, that is hard work. But it's not up to me to save anyone. It's up to God to save people. And so, when we evangelize or witness, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in these ways. And with others. We can get through this really quickly. And with others. You see, in every person's journey to Christ... There are a number of people who have contributed in that journey. 
when I think of my own salvation and I look back to the steps, I can point out a number of different individuals who, who stepped into my life at very specific points and witnessed to me, shared with me, exhorted me, made me mad, gave me a book to read. And all of that culminated in September 1979 when God just broke through to my heart finally. And I'm not a huge statistic individual, but they, some of these people that work in the area of evangelism and talk to people that come to faith in Christ, they often say that it's about 10 people that are involved in the process of bringing an individual to Christ. And so even that gives me some encouragement because I do not have to, I don't have to bear the weight of everything. All I have to do is be, re, is be obedient to God in the situation that I find myself and leave the results up to God. Because God might use me today, and he might use somebody else four months down the road, and he might use somebody else eight months down the road, and in this amazing plan of salvation as God draws people to himself, we're all part of that. And so, as Corinthians says, he who plants and he who waters are one. We are God's fellow workers. You see, we're in this together. We just all have parts to play. And God, in his, um, um, the amazing way in which God works is that we are all part of this big picture in seeing men and women, boys and girls, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And our role is not necessarily to actually lead them to Christ, but to lead them one step closer to Christ. That might, a little bit of seed here, a little bit of water there, a little bit of encouragement here. And that's our role. And so as we think about evangelism, and as we think about this, our, our job is witnessing. To witness, then, is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others to bring one or more persons one step closer to Christ. I find that just extraordinarily a helpful way to look at witnessing. Well, another person in, in a book that I was reading sort of uses this illustration. He said, God the Holy Spirit prepares the way for people to come to faith in Christ. As a TV, TV program finishes, many, people, many people's names are scrolled on the screen before us. We usually don't take notice, notice of them, even that of the director. Yet without him or her, the production would never have seen the light of day. In the stories of salvation, our attention is drawn to individuals. But if we look for the credits, we see it is always God the Holy Spirit who is behind the scenes directing the outworking of God's plan of salvation in the lives of countless individuals. Isn't that a helpful way of looking about it? God is the director, and we are just involved in this whole scene in bringing about the purposes of God in the lives of men and women. So I just want to spend then the remainder of our time looking at Acts chapter 8. And as we look at Acts chapter 8, you will see the way in which these things um, find a place in this story of Philip um, and the Ethiopian. Acts chapter 8, um, verses 26 to verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and he went. And there was an, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? 
and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch said to him, or saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. A couple points um, from this passage, which I, I, I are helpful, at least to me. And the first is simply following the Lord's leading. Following the Lord's leading. You notice in verse 26, in verse 29, in verse 39, the influence of, of of, of the Spirit or of God in his life. And the angel of the Lord said to him, and the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. There's a sensitivity that we need to cultivate in our hearts as God's people. A sensitivity to hearing the voice of the Spirit of God as he's nudging us and he's saying, go talk to that person, go sit there. Um, why don't you take that route instead of this route? Um, you know, why don't you just stay here an extra 10 minutes? It's a, it's a, a, a sensitivity that we cultivate. One of the ways, and I may have told this before, so if I have, forgive me, but the way that I try and understand this and, and has helped me, I used to be a, um, on staff at Broadway Church in, in Vancouver, and uh, it was a long time ago, and uh, Sunday nights, it was just the place to be, and um, Sunday nights, uh, I can't remember if it was 1,100, uh, 1,200 people that we would cram into the church, had a big balcony on the top, and um, usually at the, uh, almost at the end of every Sunday night service, Pastor Allen would would um, call people up to the front, and there would be hundreds of people at the front, just crammed to the front, just crying out to God, praying to God, singing, worshiping God, and it was just a, it was just a wonderful way to end a Sunday and to prepare for the the week coming. And it was in one of those um, Sunday night um, settings that uh, I had been up in the balcony, and this young couple was sitting before be in front of me, and they just had a baby, uh, much like Jonathan and Emily. I think the baby was three to five months old or so, um, and. Uh, um, during, as the altar call was given, um, uh, the girl looked to her husband and uh, I think she asked him, can I go down? He said, go. And so, you know, of course, with a few little instructions to a nervous young man, um, off she went and uh, went around and down. And then I caught her as she was walking into the crowd of people. And she was involved uh, worshiping God. I, I, I was watching her and praising God and worshiping God and, and um, just involved in what was going loud stuff. And at the same to- time that my eyes were on her, all of a sudden, her little baby just began to make some squawks. And it was like within a second, she just whirled around and looked up and just caught the attention of her husband to just make sure everything was all right. And that for me is sort of an illustration of tuning your heart to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. There is so much noise going on in our lives. You know, there, there is so much of our own stuff. There is so much of our own voices. There are so many other people's voices, and yet we need to train our hearts and our insides to hear the voice of the Spirit. 
And that is just done by trial and error. You just learn how to do that by, by trial and error. Sometimes you get it wrong, sometimes you get it right. But eventually you will come to the point where you will more often than not say, that's the Spirit of God, I better listen. Philip had done that because it says of Philip that he arose and went. No questions asked. And what was staggering to me about Philip is that um, if you have the chance this afternoon, you might want to read the first part of chapter 8 up until verse 26. And in the first part of 28, Philip was involved in revival meetings. Like there were people coming to Christ. And there were people being healed. And demons were being cast out of people. And, and there was just this revival that was taking place in the, in the towns in which he was going to. And God sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you to leave there and go to this deserted desert road. And I, you get no sense that Philip balked at that. He simply said, yes, I'll go. He arose and he went. The second thing that I see after the Lord's leading is the Lord's preparing. Observe the Lord's preparing in this. And so that's going on in this part of the world with Philip. And then over here, God is working in an Ethiopian. There is an Ethiopian. It covers a, a whole lot more territory than Ethiopia does today. Um, it was considered on the southern edge of the earth or the edge of the world back in those days. And Homer in the Odyssey calls it the southern edge of the earth. And you, you might notice what's going on here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, it says there that, uh, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. See what's happening in the first eight chapters of Acts? That is being fulfilled. Philip is taken from Samaria in the cities of Samaria, and he is now speaking to an Ethiopian who was considered to be at the end of the earth. He was in a man of power and influence, a court official, and it just simply tells us that he was come to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know. Uh, he wasn't a Christian. Um, you don't have to be a, a Christian to, to, ha- to be said to be worshiping. We have all kinds of settings in which people worship. Um, you can worship false gods. You can worship false idols. But he was in Jerusalem worshiping. Maybe he, had got, um, maybe he had been following the Jewish religion and he liked what they were doing. And so he was offering alms. Maybe he had offered a sacrifice. Um, all of that could be entailed in this fact of he was in Jerusalem worshiping. But nonetheless, God had drawn him to Jerusalem and his sensitivities were being heightened. And then somewhere along the way, he happened to pick up a scroll of Isaiah. Whether or not it was the whole scroll or just a portion of it, he picked up a scroll of Isaiah. And so God was already working in his life. He was working behind the scene. And isn't this what we saw in Esther? God woke up a king. God told him to read a book. God showed him where to read in a book. Just the way God plans events. Here's God doing that over here with the Ethiopian. He's in Jerusalem worshiping. He picks up a scroll. And now he's reading a certain spot in that scroll. And so these things are, are happening, and, and without jumping ahead for a minute, just back up, and do you see what we're saying? God was already involved in evangelism. Before Philip ever came on the scene, God was already stirring the Ethiopian's heart. He was already opening him up to hear the things of Scripture, and that God is the primary seeker of the lost. Philip didn't have a clue who this guy was. He didn't know him from Adam, but God had his hand upon that Ethiopian. Ethiopian, and he was drawing him to himself. He was seeking a lost one to bring him in 
to his family. And then making the Lord's divine appointment. The Bible doesn't tell us what is going on here, but now he takes Philip over here and he takes the Ethiopian over here and he says, you guys are going to have a meeting. There's an, a, a divine appointment that's going to happen. And I don't know what Philip was doing. Is he just sort of ended up on this, this, this road from Jerusalem to Gaza and it was a dusty road, it was a desert road, and maybe he was hanging out in an oasis just waiting for God to speak to him next. Next, maybe he was just walking down the street or the road, kicking up a little bit of gravel uh, and dust and thinking, okay, God, I'm here. Now what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, um, uh, unbeknownst to him yet, though, this chariot starts coming along the road. And this isn't like a Ben-Hur chariot with two big wheels and six horses and a rider, and it's just like going a gazillion miles an hour down the, the road there. This is like a, a chuck wagon. Um, and it's probably got four wheels, and it's covered, and it's got room to sit and to lounge and to read, and, and so the Ethiopian is reading, so it couldn't be going too fast because the roads weren't that great, and so all of a sudden, this, here's Philip walking down the road or standing at an oasis, and here's this um, covered wagon down the road, and God says, there it is. This is why I've got you here. Go up to that chariot. And so Philip walks up or runs up beside the chariot, jogging along beside the chariot, and he hears the guy reading from Isaiah. And he says to him, do you understand what you are reading? You know, I, I, that happens to me every day. I, I wish that um, almost every day when I open the Word, somebody would come up to me and say, Paul, do you understand what you're reading? And just help me out a little bit. Um, but Philip, he says to him, do you understand what you are reading? And the honest w- reply was, how can I understand unless somebody tell me? And I've just, I think in the notes there, there are some scriptures that you can look to on your own, which, which I think make it clear of why we need understanding. This is, this is, we're natural. We don't understand the things of God. And so he's reading the word of God, and he can't make sense of it. He doesn't know who he's talking about. And so he needs somebody to explain the word of God to him. And he happened to be reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8, which is about um, the death of the innocent one, the death of the one who gave up his life um, freely, the death of the one who died in the place of others. And that's where Philip, all of a sudden, opening his mouth with that scripture, he begins to tell him the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible from beginning to end is the book about Jesus and there, there ought to be, a, any point in the Bible, we ought to be able to use that as a launching point and, and quickly get to other passages which, which reinforce that one or show how that one leads to, to Jesus Christ and to who he is. And he shares with him the good news. This is so important, is it not? People need the Lord. They need to understand about the angst in their lives. They need to understand about the emptiness in their lives. They need to understand why it is that, that though they might everything in, have everything in the world, they're still troubled by stuff. They need to understand why sometimes at night they, they can't fall asleep as easily as they like to because they don't have a worry in the world, and yet they're still troubled by something. They need to understand where that comes from. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That God created this amazing place. And that man chose to sin. And as a consequence of our sin, we have alienated ourselves from God. We are hostile towards God. That there is a deadness that is set in within our hearts and in our lives. There is this inability to find God. We grope for Him. We seek for Him. But on our own, we can't find Him. 
And this is the point in which Isaiah comes in that, that he tells us that there is this one, this perfect man, this fully God, this Jesus Christ, God who became flesh. And that he entered into this world and he lived perfectly before God. He lived the life that you and I can't live. He, he know, knew the joy that you and I didn't know. He, he knew the experience of a relationship with God that you and I didn't have. And he followed with God to the point where God said, and now you have to bear the sins of the world. And Jesus died on the cross. And in that death, he paid the penalty for the sins of all who would put their faith and trust in him. And it's as a result of that death and then the resurrection that, that there is hope that there is freedom from despair, that there is meaning to life, that there is context to life. And the scripture is so clear, the good news is so clear that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and if you say to him, I can't live like this anymore, I can't deal with my life as it is, I'm troubled by by the things that I don't know and the things I don't understand and I don't know what will happen when I die, but Jesus, I know that somehow in some way you lived for me and that you died for me and I trust you with my life. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what we share with people around us. And the amazing thing is right after that, and, and this, this must have been some kind of conversation, but the abruptness of the scripture is, is fascinating. You know, he says, and he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. Sorry, Ross. They came to some water, and the Ethiopian says, what prevents me from being baptized? I, I find that um, encouraging. I understand why we have procedures and why we have policies in churches and classes and all of that, and those things are necessary. But we need not to get bogged down in those. Those aren't Scripture. They have a place, and I understand them, but what is to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. We well, haven't taken a class. Well, I didn't know it was a class. It's, we, don't, we don't find that. And we, we have to find this balance, I think. You know, the, the Scripture is very clear in the New Testament it, that, that baptism almost follows, if not always, almost always immediately on the heels of a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And they weren't concerned about how much water there was and all of this. They, the guy just saw some water and he says, I need to be baptized. I need to go through that symbolic cleansing. I, I need to know that my sins are washed away and I understand how the water symbolizes that and I just need this, this, this stuff washed off of me. And I want to identify with Christ in his, in his death and in His resurrection. What prevents me from being baptized? And they baptized Him. And staggering thing is as soon as they come up out of the water, Philip is gone and the Ethiopian is full of joy. And it even amazes me more in this particular instance that, that we, we might think to ourselves, well, he doesn't have a Bible. How's he ever going to survive? He doesn't have the Gospels yet. He's just got this scroll of Isaiah and he didn't even know what three verses meant. And we panic. Well, we've got to get him in this class and we've got to do that. And, and there's, there's place for that. But loved ones, if we trust in a God who draws someone to himself, we ought to also trust in a God who keeps those that he draws to himself. And I don't know how this all worked, but I know that by the end of the first century, there was a pretty significant church in Ethiopia. How was that possible? Simply because that Ethiopia went, Ethiopian went with all the knowledge that God had given him to that point, and he told other people what Jesus had done for him. 
Isn't that the story of the Gerizonic uh, demoniac who, who, who just was cutting himself up and was breaking chains and Jesus came along and delivered him. And, and at the end of that, he, he wanted to go with Jesus across the lake and get into the boat and go with the disciples. And remember what Jesus said to him? No, no. You just go back to your village and your people and tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Tell people what Jesus has done for you. How he saved you, how he's delivered you, how he's given you hope, um, how, he's, how he helps you day by day, what he means in your life. Just tell people what Jesus has done for you. If I were to sit with Philip, I imagine this in my study this week, and Philip was coming along to me, and I were to say to Philip, Philip, what's your style? Um, what is it about your witness? And he would say these things to me. This is what I imagine. Paul, I'm, I'm just prepared to speak to one individual on his own if that's necessary. I'm prepared to speak to people. And you know, Paul, I, I'm also I'm available to God. I'm available. I, I've, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself and I'm trying to learn to hear the voice of the Spirit. And when he says, do this, I do it. When he says, go there, I go there. And it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm just trying to make myself available to God. I thought, I can do that. And then he says, um, you know, I'm learning to ask the right questions. Questions are so important in sharing your faith because it, 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 it allows people to engage in the conversation. It allows them, it, it gives you an entrance point into their life and what's going on. And so Philip had learned to ask the right questions. And so I need to think about how can I, instead of just tell people, and, and throw stuff on people, how can I invite them to give me an opportunity to share where it is they're hurting or where it is they're troubled? And then um, he said, I picture him saying something like this, I get quickly to the heart of the good news about Jesus. It's so important that we don't forget the good news about Jesus when we talk with people. Don't be ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Don't think that because you don't have the, the, the whole Bible memorized that somehow you're, you're unqualified or unable. Just share the gospel. Share what God has done for you. And finally, um, you know, Paul, I'm just willing to spend some time presenting the whole gospel to people. Philip was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and that was something that I think we can all learn to cultivate. Um, and I was thinking, you know, as a people, why don't we leave here this morning with a renewed determination to be witnesses for God this week? Why don't we leave here with a, uh, with a renewed intention to say, Spirit of God, I want to hear your voice this week. Would you let me hear you prompting me to who to talk to or where to go or, or where to be? Try to stay open to God this week. Try to look for His involvement and His leading in your everyday life. And I said to the first service, and I'll say to you, if you have a divine appointment that you meet, will you let me know? I had three people come up to me after the first service and tell me about divine appointments they had last week. Loved ones, God is setting these things up all over the place. But if you have a divine, just share it with me this week. Let me know what God is doing in your life. And would we do one more thing as a church?
Would we try, if we can remember this week, to commit to pray for our church this week as we go out into the world? Just pray for people. God, would you give them a divine appointment? God, would you allow them to hear your spirit? God, would you, would you help them share the gospel? Would you help them to tell people about what Jesus has done? For? Let's just pray for one another this week. And maybe let's come back next week and find out that now there, there are six or seven people rejoicing in our community that weren't rejoicing today because God has brought them into his family. Let's pray.